Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org. Okay, let's look at Daniel, the other half. We're going to consider the last half now of this chapter, beginning at verse 8. It's kind of interesting, this is about food. And uh, Sam happened to be talking about fasting and food today in Sunday school. Sometimes it's interesting how things coalesce in the service and in Sunday school by no collusion on either part. It just happens to be the same subject. However, Daniel and his three friends are not fasting here. They go on a vegetarian diet. So let's verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs, that is, Ashpenaz, as he was named earlier in the chapter. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you were in a worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head, with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for the four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all the literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and the enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Well, this is all interesting history accounts that we're going to be looking at in Daniel, something entirely different from Romans and Acts and the Gospel of John. This is about Daniel and his three friends. So they're going to meet their first trial now that Daniel records as they're now in a new place. 
they're in a very strange land, the land of Babylon, and they're exposed to a culture that is antagonistic to their religion, to their beliefs, to their worldview, to their thoughts. And what are they going to do? They're under intense pressure now to conform to, we'll say, this culture generally, but it's to what Nebuchadnezzar wants. But they're going to model here for us, Daniel and his three friends, they're going to model nonconformity. So there's a great lesson in this for us today, I believe. So let's, let's think our way through this passage. In verses 8 to 10, I want us to see that Daniel, and I'm going to be putting this per, pretty much in terms of Daniel, implying him and his three friends, that they demonstrate that their ultimate loyalty belongs to God. Right off, verses 8 to 10. Their ultimate loyalty and allegiance belongs to God, not to Nebuchadnezzar. But Daniel's got to be careful here how he does this. He's got to be wise and discreet. You've got to tread carefully. Because this is a king who is unpredictable and capricious. And he could lose his life and cause Aspenaz to lose his head as well. So in verses 8 to 10, notice it says that Daniel resolved. Right off, he was very firm in his mind. He made up his mind. This is how one of the versions translates it. He made up his mind. So he's motivated here by a very deep-seated conviction that he's going to hold to his principles that has to do with his religion. These are religious principles that come out of the law. And he resolved that he was not going to defile himself. He wasn't going to pollute himself in a ritualistic, ceremonial sense, maybe even a moral sense. But I think it's primarily ceremonial. By eating the king's meat, the king's rich and fine food. Now, what would there be about Nebuchadnezzar's menu, the king's diet, that would be a violation of Daniel and his three friends' religious principles. Well, there's a couple of areas that probably applies here. First of all, it would have to do with the way that they prepared their food. We talked about this before, that meat was had to be, the animal had to be slaughtered in a certain way, it's blood-drained, it had to be prepared a certain way to be kosher, and you could almost bank on it that Nebuchadnezzar did not observe any of that. So they were assuming that the food would not be up to Jewish standards, up to the standards of the law. And then also that the animals themselves may be in that class of unclean animals that are mentioned in the book of Leviticus, animals that they were not to eat, could have also been a part of the king's diet. But probably more than any of that would be the fact that the food they could almost guarantee, the food and the drink, had both been offered to idols, to the gods of Nebuchadnezzar. 
This was standard procedure that food that was offered to the deities were later consumed by the people. So, based on that alone, Daniel could not partake. He couldn't eat the king's food, probably for all those reasons. So, therefore, he asks, notice it's a request that he makes. He asks the chief of the eunuchs to allow him, I think Daniel's being very courteous here about this. He's not protesting in an obnoxious way. He's doing it in a a very careful, courteous, gentle way. He's he's asking to be allowed to abstain on religious grounds, that he would not defile himself with the king's food. And then notice, this is the second time in chapter 1 where we read, God gave. You might underscore in your Bible each of these times. We found it in verse 2. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. Now we read that God gave Daniel favor and compassion. We're going to come to the third time that it says God gave. Again, this is a reminder to us. Then in spite of the fact that they're in this strange land, in this culture that is opposed to everything they believe and stand for, that's a very toxic and seductive culture, that God is there. God is with them. God is working behind the scenes. I love Jesus' statement in John 5, My Father is working. And I am working. How many times do we hear people talk about, well, God is at work, like this is something unusual. No, no, no. He's working all the time. God is at work all the time. It's in the continuous text, a tense. My Father is working continuously. God never stops working in the affairs of mankind, and especially on behalf of His people. What did he do here? Well, he moved on Ashpenaz's heart to be sympathetic to Daniel. He shows him favor and even compassion. This is a man that doesn't know God. Ashpenaz doesn't know Yahweh. He's a stranger to the God of Daniel, but God worked in his heart to show consideration to Daniel, to favor him. As I was looking into this, I discovered that Solomon prayed several centuries before in 1 Kings 8 at the dedication of the temple. He prayed that when God's people were captured, were in captivity that God would cause their captors to show them compassion. This is 1 Kings 8.50, if you want the reference to it. So in a sense, that's a fulfillment. Solomon's prayer is being fulfilled right here in Daniel 1. There's also the example from the life of Joseph. You remember back in the book of Genesis, chapter 39, that God gave Joseph favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. So this is something God does. 
He loves His people. He's caring for them wherever they are in life. Moving the unbeliever to show compassion and favor. That Ashpenaz, he doesn't grant Daniel's request. He doesn't say no to it, but he doesn't agree to it. He simply states that he has some reservations about it. Let's, let's look at it again. Verse 10. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king. He had good reason to fear Nebuchadnezzar, who could take his head off. So, what he does is he kind of gives the problem to this next person called the steward. We'll see that in the next section here. But, let me go on. For why should he see that you were in a worse condition than the youths who are of your age? The worse condition is the idea that they looked, uh, they had a sad face. Uh, not eating the king's meat might result in them looking physically worse than the other men that they were being compared to. That's the fear that Ashpenaz had. And so that would reveal that they weren't eating the same food, and that would come back on Ashpenaz, and then he would be the one responsible. So this is his fear. He's stating his fear that they're going to turn out to be in a worse condition and therefore endanger his life. Now, in verses 10 to 16, Daniel has a solution. Where there's a will, there's a way. And he's going to find a a nice way around this that protects Ashpenaz, that does not insult Nebuchadnezzar, that preserves their integrity, their convictions, and so on. What is it? Test us for ten days. Now, there's nothing significant about the ten days other than, it's mentioned three times, ten days, ten days, ten days, The time is short enough that no suspicions will be aroused by anybody. It's a a short period of time, and yet it's long enough that they would see any benefit that would come from a diet of vegetables and water, which is what they wanted to go on. So at the end of the ten days, if it proves successful, then he might be willing to grant them their new diet, which is how it turns out. So he listened to them. So this is the second man who is unnamed. Now let me point out something. Some of the Bible translations will actually say the word translated steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over them, is actually a word that could be a proper name. It's Melzor. Melzor. And some of the Bible translations will actually name him, and they're not sure. Is it a proper name, or is it the name of the office that he has? So in our translation, it's translated as the office, the steward that Ashpenaz put over Daniel and his three friends. So they were tested for 10 days. They were given food and water. 
And at the end of the ten days, they were seen to be better in appearance. It all had to do with how they looked after drinking only water and eating vegetables. They were fatter in flesh. That probably pertains to how their face looked. Brighter, more plumped. Their skin looked better, so being on this diet for 10 days actually made a little difference in their appearance. So, Melzar, he was fine with it. Okay, you, you guys look great. I'm going to take away the king's diet, and you can have water and vegetables. Now, Daniel 1 is not about being a vegetarian. <laughs> I don't think it ought to be used that way. It is interesting that it's described for us specifically what their diet was, but I don't think it's being imposed or even suggested to God's people to become uh, those who eat only vegetables or drink only water. It's not the Daniel plan for God's people. Now, notice in the last Verses 17 to 21. Now, as for these youths, they're distinguished now. This is my third point. They're distinguished for their health, for their the way they look, and for their wisdom. And they're better than those that they were put sort of in competition with. So, as for the four youths... God gave. Now again, here it is. God gave. God is involved in the lives of his people, behind the scenes, in the lives of those that are not his people. He's working, always working. God is near. He's the one who is with his people no matter where they are. And we see that clearly here in Babylon. Whereas the gods of Nebuchadnezzar, they like brought out Earlier in the the introduction to the book, their their view of the deities were they were territorial gods. The gods of the heathen were territorial. They had their own locality that they controlled, where they worked. So different from Yahweh, who fills heaven and earth. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. He's not limited to a locality. Not a local deity. So what does it say? God gave them learning and skill, academic learning, the aptitude to learn, what they were to learn, the content. And it's told here, again, it's the literature and the wisdom of the Babylonians. Remember Moses, when he was in Egypt, it says that he was trained in all of the wisdom of the Egyptians. Stephen brings that out in his great sermon in Acts 7, that Moses was trained also in the wisdom of the Egyptians. So this was important to one who was going to serve the king. He had to be familiar with all of the knowledge, the wisdom of the Babylonians, and they were skilled in it. This is what we're being told. This is an amazing thing. It's hard to comprehend the nature of all this 
information that they had to digest, become proficient in, because Nebuchadnezzar is going to give them an oral exam in a minute about this learning. They're going to be tested. They're going to be interviewed by him. Now, some have said particularly about Daniel. So the first statement that God gave them learning and all the literature and the wisdom, the them refers to Daniel and his three friends. But now, so Daniel was skilled also in this literature and wisdom, but Daniel had an additional skill or ability from God. And it's described here. He had understanding of all dreams and visions. Now, there is a distinction between dreams and visions. Both are illustrated in Old and New Testament. Many, many people had dreams and also visions. Kind of the difference between what happened during the daytime versus at night. A dream clearly is nighttime. And a vision occurred during the day. When Peter had his vision in Acts 10 of the sheet that was let down from heaven, all the animals, and he was told to eat them. That was a vision. It was like something he saw that passed right before his eyes, but yet it was not a reality. It was a vision that he had. Now, this has been one of the ways that God has been pleased to reveal himself to people. Many people are coming to faith in Christ in Iran, in the Middle East, out of Islam, through dreams and visions of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can read about it. More have been converted and brought to Christ in the recent years than all of the previous history of missions and evangelism that have gone on among the Muslim people. This is how they're coming to know Jesus Christ. Dreams and visions. This is Acts Chapter 2, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions, and so on. It's still happening. I don't believe it's something for the first century. No, God is, this is one of the ways God communicates his will to people. It says in the book of Job, God speaks in one way and in two, though man does not perceive it. In a dream, in the visions of the night, when deep sleep falls on man mentioned a few times in the book of Job how God speaks through dreams in particular. Now, I'm not saying every dream God is speaking to you. That's not what I'm saying. This is one of the ways that God has communicated to man, especially in ancient times. It's interesting, the Babylonians and the Egyptians... Both had dream books where dreams were recorded and they had the interpretation of the dream, the key to the interpretation, and that was part of the literature that was studied by those of the wise men, all the different categories of wise men in Babylon. So, verse 18. At the end of the time, that's not, that doesn't mean at the end of ten days. 
This is, you have to go back to the previous section we covered in chapter 1. It has to do with the three years of training. So they've gone through three years of training, learning the Babylonian knowledge and literature and wisdom and so on, and all that that meant. Now at the end of the three years, all the young men that were selected to go before Nebuchadnezzar, they come before him now for their oral exam. They're going to be interviewed by him. So at the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs, again, this is Ashpenaz, he brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them. He questioned them. Yeah, he knew exactly what to ask them to know if they'd done their homework, if they've studied the the literature and so on. So notice what it says about that. The king spoke with them, and among them there was none like Daniel and his three friends. Therefore, they stood before the king. That, That standing before the king is an idiom for they went into his service. They became servants of Nebuchadnezzar in the king's court. They stood before the king, and in every manner of wisdom and understanding, their insight into problem-solving issues, critical thinking, sound judgment, And so in all these various ways that they would have been questioned by Nebuchadnezzar to find out how smart and wise they were. He found them to be ten times better than all the other youths. The other youths, they were indoctrinated as well. They had to study the same literature, but these men, God just gave them an additional ability, an aptitude of learning and skill in all of this. It was very impressive to Nebuchadnezzar. Now, two of Nebuchadnezzar's kinds of wise men, two groups, are mentioned especially here that they were found better. These are, the, these are now the seasoned uh, wise men of Babylon that are mentioned, two categories of them, that they even exceeded them. Look at who he mentions. The magicians. Now, who were they? they were, these were men who were skilled in the occultic arts. Astrology, sorcery, Divination, Nebuchadnezzar, these were his top advisors. Kind of interesting. They even looked at them as as possible health professionals. If you had a problem, well, there may be a curse behind that physical ailment. So you see how they would go to somebody like this to figure out the omen or the incantation, the ritual that needed to be performed in order to stave off this negative thing that's happened to a person. So these are the magicians. And the enchanters, entirely different. The New American Standard Bible translates the enchanters by the conjurers. 
those that called up spirits from the dead, those that had the ability, the skill to communicate with the spirit world, basically, is who these are. This, this word is only mentioned twice in the Old Testament, and they're both in the book of Daniel, here and in the next chapter. The, the enchanters. They were a priestly class as well. So Daniel and his three friends were better than them. Now clearly, they represent darkness. This is where their skills and knowledge comes from. It comes from the realm of darkness. Daniel and his three friends, they got theirs from the Lord. They're in light. So here we have a contrast between light and darkness. The light always prevails over darkness. Doesn't it? It always conquers the darkness, the light. Always. And here's a perfect example here. So the first chapter ends with a bookend. It begins with a bookend and it ends with a bookend. It basically is telling us the duration of Daniel's career. Chapter 1 and verse 1 tells us it began, his deportation to Babylon began when he was a teenager. Really, the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, the third year of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, which places the beginning date of Daniel 1 at 605 B.C. Daniel's career now goes through the first year of King Cyrus, the king of Persia. So he's going through the Babylonian Empire into the next empire, the Medo-Persian Empire. And the first year of Cyrus is also known in secular history as being 539 B.C. 539 to 605 B.C. is 70 years. That was the period of Judah's captivity in Babylon, announced by Jeremiah the prophet, that they were going to be in captivity for 70 years. So Daniel spent the entire captivity, the, the entire time of his life in captivity, no record that he ever went back to Judah as an old man, it's believed that he probably died there in Babylon. So that's the first chapter of Daniel. Now, what are some of the things that we can glean out of this? Well, let's think about the fact that the four young men that appear in this chapter are teenagers. Somewhere between eight, 14 and 18 is when it's estimated their ages. So these are, these are young people. Well, clearly very mature young people. And they had really been taught well, hadn't they? Were they taught by their parents? We don't know. But they show such a faithfulness to God at that age. They're not willing to compromise their convictions. As teenagers, how many teenagers are like that today in the church? Probably some are. It's amazing. It, it, it shows something about their training. Father probably followed Deuteronomy 6. After announcing the, the great underlying principle to 
the doctrine of God in the Old Testament, the Lord our God is one Lord. He is a composite unity. He's one being, but there's a composite there. Is the original language makes it clear. Same word for one that's used, and the two shall be one flesh in the book of Genesis. It's actually a, kind of a hidden reference to the fact that God is more than one person. He's a single being, unity in essence, but a composite unity. Let us make man in our image, and so on, all those references. But here it is announced to Israel. And after that great statement as to who God is, the fathers are told, you shall teach these things diligently to your children. When? You're to teach them when you're sitting in your house, when you're walking by the way, when you rise up and when you lie down. In other words, be constantly instructing your children. Not in an obnoxious way where this is just all you talk about as a parent, but to be ready at those moments, opportune moments, and we know when they come. I remember they did, when we had our children when they were very young, when it was a good time to teach and when it was not, to fill their mind with the truth of God, just remind them, because as we sensitized our child's conscience to what is pleasing and displeasing to the Lord, then a very simple little mild rebuke that can be done very lovingly and gently, you know, the Lord is not pleased with that, what you just did. can have a powerful effect upon the mind of a child or a young person. But there needs to be that groundwork laid, the teaching laid early in their life. And I... To me, it seems like these men really, their faithfulness uh, to God when they're teenagers impresses me that they had this training. So I'm reading between the lines. I'm believing that that's why they were this strong and dedicated in their sense of allegiance to God. Now, secondly, you know, underscored again, the first chapter of Daniel illustrates the truth of a proverb that's well known. It's Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. And like the streams of water, he turns it wherever he will. Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Why pick on a king? Well, the king, is a, he's an absolute ruler. He's a sovereign. He does whatever he wants. This is why. He's taken the top person in the world that really does whatever he wants at any time. God has his heart in his hand. And he turns it however he wants. We see that in action with Sennacherib, the Assyrian king. Isaiah chapter 10 tells us about what God was going to do with him. He said, I put a ring in your nose, and he's going to drag him 
around and make him do what he wants him to do. Yet Sennacherib goes about it as though he were entirely free, doing whatever he wanted to do. But this is how God describes his control over an earthly monarch. Same is true of Nebuchadnezzar. The last book of the Bible says, God put it into their heart to carry out his purpose. Revelation 17, 17. This is how it is. This is how God works. He works in the mind and heart of men. To do what? To carry out his purpose, his plan. He's the sovereign. He's the one calling the shots in the universe, not man. Now, in Nebuchadnezzar's mind, he was... He was doing this. Why, why did he want these young men serving him? It's to, for his own glory. It's for his own splendor to have these brilliant young advisors serving in the court. And so it's all for himself. But what was God's reason for raising them up, giving them this skill, giving them understanding, giving them the conviction to stand for him, because he's, he's, he's elevating his servants, his children, in this idolatrous culture to serve there, to make other people aware of himself by their modeling such godly behavior. And then finally, you know, this, this the first chapter is a, a preoccupation with a distinctive diet of food. Now, that was a concern in the Old Testament, like I pointed out. God's people were concerned about that. They continued to be concerned about it even into the book of Acts. Remember, this is why they didn't like Peter going to the house of Cornelius and staying there and sitting and dining with them. The Jewish Christians still had a problem with the diet. This is why it took those visions that Peter had to get him to go down to Caesarea and preach in the house of Cornelius. There's no way he was going to do that till God convinced him that there was no food now considered unclean. So in the new for the New Testament Christian, this is no longer an issue for us. So this is not in our application of this, it's not about food for us. As Paul says over in 1 Corinthians 8, 8, food will not commend us to God. Now, if you were a Seventh-day Adventist, for example, you would believe that because they still want to hold to the dietary laws of the Old Testament and think somehow if I... Eat only these kinds of foods that are going to commend me to God. I'm going to have more favor with him. No, it doesn't work that way now in the New Testament. It's not about food. Paul says everything is now available to Christians to eat. We, if we receive it with prayer and thanksgiving, doesn't matter what it is. We can eat anything. So, believing that that's true, then what is the point of this? Well, I put it like this. Where is God calling us and the church generally 
to take a stand today that is uncompromising and not conforming to the pressures, the environment, the culture, the worldview of today. Where are those lines being drawn? Well, if you keep up with the news and if you've read anything about what's happened in the Southern Baptist Church most recently, having removed from the membership of the huge Southern Baptist Convention, which involves thousands of churches and millions of people in America, they removed one of the large megachurches in our day. And the issue for them was the ordination of a woman as a pastor. So as I, my understanding of where the issues are, it has to do with that, the ordination of gay men, gay marriage. These are some of the hot buttons of the church today. You can add to that list, I'm sure. So in closing, I want to read a quotation from Martin Luther. Not King, but the Reformer, Martin Luther. Some of you probably heard this, but I was reminded of it today. And I thought, oh, I, gotta, I want to sh- bring this up. This is what he said. If I profess with the loudest voice... And the clearest exposition, that is, teaching the Bible, if I profess with the loudest voice and the clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God, except precisely the little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I'm not confessing Christ however boldly I may be professing Christianity. It always struck me, that quotation. So where is the battle being waged now? This is where the church needs to speak up. The church needs to be strong, take a stand of nonconformity. Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org.